What a wonderful book this book of Philippians is, and this morning we come to another one of what I consider to be one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, where the Apostle Paul is giving some warnings of things that the church here has to be aware of, but at the same time it contains a passionate plea for every Christian to make Jesus Christ and the pursuit of pleasing Him the number one thing in our lives above all else. In the early 1920s, there was a population explosion in Southern California. All of these people moving to the area created a need for a large water reservoir to be created. They hired at the time the esteemed William Mulholland. He had built the Los Angeles Aqueduct and they selected the San Francisco Canyon 40 miles from downtown L.A. to create this large water reservoir where the dam would hold in the water and it would be able to be used to meet the needs of all the new residents in the area. Design and production began in 1924 and on May 4th, 1926, it was completed. 185 feet above the canyon floor, this dam stood to hold in the water. However, there was a problem. As water filled the reservoir, cracks began to appear. Seepage flowed from underneath the abatements. Three different times, the workers who worked round the clock to keep an eye on the dam and to do what needed to be done noticed that there was some type of a crack or potential failure and reported it. Three different times, Mulholland and his lead assistant came out and inspected the dam. They proclaimed that they were nothing out of the ordinary or of concern for a large dam. However, at 11.57 p.m. on March 12, 1928, the St. Francis Dam suffered a catastrophic failure. Within 70 minutes, the dam was practically empty. 12.4 billion gallons of water had surged down the canyon, traveling at 18 miles an hour, creating a flood wave that was 140 feet tall. Some of the workers and their families who lived in the valley were never found. However, it was estimated that 385 people lost their lives because of this failure. So we've been studying Philippians and coming through a section where Paul says, Obey, do, put your faith into action, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we've talked about the fact that building is really important, that we don't get complacent, but that we say, Lord, we want to go forward for you. We want to build for the future. We want to see souls saved, disciples made. We want to get things done. Building is important, but so too is protecting and being aware and being on the lookout for things that could bring destruction to that which has already been built. In the book of Nehemiah, we learn how Nehemiah had it put on his heart by God to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall, just like the prophet Daniel had prophesied. And we read that as they began to build, they finished half of the wall in a brief period of time because the people had a mind to work. However, as is often the case when we desire to do a work for the Lord, there's people who are not thrilled about that. Sanballat and Tobias became enemies and they began to threaten them and then they began to try and distract them and say, come on down and talk to us. Take a break from the work that you're doing. 
And Nehemiah said the work that God has called us to do is a great work. And we will not come down and stop what we are doing to deal with people who have bad intentions that would want to harm the work of the Lord. Then Nehemiah records this wonderful verse where it says they knew the threat was real and that people wanted to come and attack them in the night to stop the building of the wall. So it says they continued on in their work and they held in one hand a trowel and in the other hand a sword. The trowel would be used to lay the mortar beneath the brick so that they could build and the sword would be held in their other hand so that a moment's notice they could stop building if need be to fight and to defend from the enemies who were coming to hurt the work of God. Charles Spurgeon wrote a newsletter and it was called The Sword and the Trowel because in the work of the church and in the work of the Lord, there's a need for both. There's a need to build and go forward, but there also is the need to defend from error, from false doctrine, from legalism, from pride, from apathy, from division within the body of Christ. Paul's letters, while they contain so many, we could almost say inspirational, beautiful, wonderful things that encourage us to go forward in our walk with the Lord. They are also full of warnings. All of the epistles He'll name people sometimes by name and say, look out for this person because they hate the Lord and they're seeking to harm the work that God is doing among you. He warns against false doctrine, against laziness, and on and on the list could go. He does encourage them to go forward and build for the Lord, but he also stops and he says, beware, be on the lookout for things that could come and disrupt the work that God is doing there amongst his church in that local body. Building is hard. Building takes time. It takes vision. It takes patience. It takes labor. It takes money. It takes sacrifice. But destruction can often come easily and quickly. And the Twin Towers in New York City took millions of dollars, years to plan, labor to build. But in a few minutes, they crumbled to the ground when there was an attack that was not stopped. In like manner, many churches have gone forward for the Lord, had a great testimony, had a lot of victories. But error, enemies, or the devil's temptations have ripped that body of Christ apart. And a church can go from a good reputation to a bad reputation, even amongst the people in the community, and it can take time to rebuild it. We see an example of this from the life of King David. God loved David. He called him a man after his own heart that fulfilled all his will. But if you study the life of David, you know that there's one terrible event that mars his record where he committed adultery. Then he committed murder to cover it up. And the Bible tells us that just as it only takes some dead flies coming into the ointment and the perfume that was used in the house of the Lord to cause that beautiful ointment to stink and to lose its desirableness. So doth a little folly, he that is in honor, he that is in reputation for honor and for having good character. We have to beware. We have to be careful of the sins that could destroy our testimony for the Lord. Our desire should be that when people think of our name, They think of our service to the Lord in a good reputation, not of a great sin that would sidetrack us. Though God is merciful, God is gracious, and when we have fallen in sin, He wants us to put that behind us and go forward. He still desires for us to be careful and be on the lookout that we avoid the type of fall 
that David had. We're going to go straight to the text this morning. Number one, Paul tells them to beware of false teachers. Beware of false teachers. Philippians 3.1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Paul says, finally, while he still says, while he still has half of the epistle left to write. It's like the preacher who tricks you when he says, well, in closing this morning, let me tell you about, and then you close your Bible and think, surely he's almost done. And then you say, well, he didn't mean it when he said he was going to close. But the word here means finally, or furthermore, or moreover. It's a transition to something else he wants to pull their attention to. And he says, rejoice in the Lord. 19 times in four chapters, he uses the word for joy or rejoicing. And he wants the church to know here, be reminded again. Don't get tired of hearing it over and over and over again. Rejoice. Not just rejoice in the way that some would say, life is short, so have a good time. Rejoice, have fun. But he says, rejoice in the Lord, in who our Savior is, in what he's done. And he encourages them all throughout this epistle to show your joy to others. Let others look at you living your Christian life and let them see and understand that to be a Christian means to live with joy and rejoicing. Not because God has promised us that we'll be rich or that we'll never have sorrows. That message from the prosperity gospel preachers is a tainted one. It's not true. We should not go around telling people, give your life to Christ, give money to the church, and then God will take away all your problems. No, this epistle is being written to a church that had some persecutions by a prophet of God who was sitting in a jail cell waiting to see whether or not he would be put to death for his faith. Yet he can boldly say, rejoice in the Lord. My circumstances may have changed, but Christ has not. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always faithful. He's always the same. My name is written in heaven. He's promised me eternal life, and that has not changed because I'm sitting in jail. If they take my life, Paul could say, Nero will not have one. I will go to heaven. I will go to see my Savior. Therefore, I can rejoice in the Lord. Then he says, to write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous. Paul here, I believe, is saying, I'm writing to you things that I've already told you. I'm repeating things that I may have said when I was there in the beginning to establish the church or when I came back to visit you and to ordain the pastors and the deacons. But to me, it's not grievous. It's not, the word here means irksome or bothering, Paul says. I'm not going to get tired of telling you the same things over and over again because you need to hear them. And repetition is the key to learning. And no doubt part of the reason why he repeats rejoice, rejoice, rejoice is for emphasis to let them know whatever's happening now, whatever's going to happen in the future, keep rejoicing, keep looking back to the Lord and encourage yourself and rejoice in him in what he's done, in what he's going to do, and that you'll be with him in heaven forever if you know him as Savior. Paul says, for me, it's not grievous or bothersome to write this to you, but for you, it is safe. Here, I believe he's telling them, don't grow weary of hearing the simple truths of the word of God taught to you over and over again. You see, no matter how many years we live, we're still going to need to keep reading the Bible. We're still going to need to keep hearing preaching and teaching. We still need to study it on our own. We still need to assemble with the saints of the Lord. 
because Christianity and discipleship, it's not something we can just read a book and then we've got it because we have a sinful fallen nature and we have to intentionally continue on in the things that we have been taught and learn them over and over again because our flesh will slip. Our mind will forget. In the book of Isaiah, there were mockers who were drunken that were hearing Isaiah's preaching. And they said to him, the word of the Lord that you always preach is line upon line, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. They were mocking. They were using what we might say in our vernacular today. When you speak, all I hear is blah, 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 on and on and on. But God said to them through Isaiah, the word of the Lord will be unto you line upon line, precept upon precept. And you must learn to accept the simple, consistent teaching of the word of God. And we should not despise the simple and consistent message that the Bible teaches us. Even though we think we may have heard it all before, let us continue to be reminded of what the word of God says. Peter writes in Second Peter chapter 1, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. The truths that he was writing to them under the inspiration of God, he says, I'm going to always remind you of them, even though you already know them. I think it meet or appropriate, as long as I am in this tabernacle, as long as I am alive, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. Peter said, after I die, I want you to always have before you and be reminded the truths that God wants you to learn. So therefore, keep reading the Bible, keep coming to church, keep listening to teaching and preaching, or else our flesh will allow the things that we've already learned to slip and to flee from our mind. Philippians 3.2, now he continues. Beware, which is where we take the theme of the message from today. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. We'll park here for just one moment. The word here for beware means to see or to discern, to be out on the lookout and aware of a couple of different things. First of all, he says dogs, which would have been a very strong term to use. At that, that place in time where they lived in Philippi, dogs were probably not domesticated pets like they are today, but he would be referring to the wild pack animals that would travel like wolves. They were devourers. They were selfish. This was a strong rebuke. And he goes on to link what he's talking about in the next couple of verses. And basically he's warning them against what the scriptures call the Judaizers, those who were Jewish that came into the Christian faith and then said, we want to teach all of the new Christians, even the Greek non-Jewish ones, that they need to keep all of the traditions and teachings of the law of the Old Testament. And Paul gave a strong rebuke to this type of teaching. Now, it's possible that when Epaphroditus came to visit Paul in prison, he could have talked with Paul about the state of the church and what was going on. And he could have said, there's some in the city, there's some within the church that are bringing these false doctrines before the people. Or it's possible that he simply knew that this was something they were going to face at some point because this popped up over and over again in the New Testament. And Paul's letters always contain two lines of thought. 
The one is against sin, against the sins of the flesh, against worldliness. The other line is always warning against this type of legalism, telling people that they need to be Jewish, either in order to go to heaven or in order to be spiritual. So Paul was always careful to include these warnings and these rebukes in the letters that he wrote to the church. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers. Then, to tell us what he's talking about, he says, beware of the concision. The word here for concision means to cut or mutilation. And it's simply referring to the fact, as we'll read here a few verses in the book of Acts, that there were several who would come and teach the church this false doctrine that in order to truly be saved or right with God, all people had to follow the Jewish traditions of circumcision and all of the other traditions that were contained in the law. I have a lot of scripture to give you and a lot of reading to get to here in a moment, so I'm going to ask for your attention this morning. If you'll give it on purpose, I believe the Lord will speak to your heart. Acts 15, certain men which came from Judea taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. This would be identified by the leaders of the church here in this chapter and by several of Paul's writings in his epistles as heresy, as blasphemy, as adding to God's simple plan of salvation. They said, no, unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. Later in the same church, same chapter, there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So if I'm reading the text here right, there were false teachers who said you can't get saved without circumcision. Then there was some which did profess Christ and believed that said, well, maybe it's not necessary for salvation, but it's needful for you to be circumcised and command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, if you want to know what a big deal that is, go home and start reading Leviticus if it's been a while. Start going through the Old Testament law. How many over 600 different commands that God gave them? Some of them were moral commands that the New Testament reinforces about how we are to live. But several of them are what we call the ceremonial law. You could not wear a shirt if it was made out of mixed fibers. You could not eat certain types of fish. You could not eat pork. So many examples you could pull that God had this intricate, very strict, heavy law that was placed upon the nation of Israel. And these Pharisees were saying, okay, you need to go to Philippi. You need to go to Thessalonica. All of these cities where they have no connection to Jewish law and tell them you have to be Jewish. You have to keep all of the law. But the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God had came to Peter and gave him a vision and said, I want you to go to Cornelius. He's not Jewish, but he's seeking truth. He wants to be saved. And I want you to go to him and not preach you need to keep the Old Testament law, but go to him and tell him you need to be saved by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. And in the vision, God was teaching Peter that he was moving the even the Jewish Christians beyond the ceremonial law. And in his vision, there was a blanket that came down that was filled with animals. It was unclean animals, according to the Jews. Things like pork, things that they weren't allowed to eat. And God said, Peter, arise, take and eat. 
And Peter, as he often did, argued with God himself. I won't let you go to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. I won't let you wash my feet. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Over and over again, this happens. And Peter looks to the Lord and he says, Not so, Lord. I'm a Jew. I've never eaten anything that is unclean. And God said, Peter, that which I am now calling clean, you have no right to call unclean. He was using the ceremonial dietary law as an example to show him that now rather than being separated from other believers because they weren't Jewish, you're all supposed to be one body of Christ made up of all different races, made up of all different backgrounds, Jewish or none, it doesn't matter. And God, that's what Peter is referencing to. Peter says, God told me that the Gentiles will hear the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So then Paul, in his letters, uses the singular issue of circumcision to hammer home over and over again the idea metaphorically that what God looks at is the heart. God looks at whether or not we've placed our faith in him. And if we believe by faith, then we are the sons of Abraham, whether we kept all of the Jewish traditions that God gave to Abraham or not. Then he says, now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He says, even the Jews weren't able to bear the Jewish law because God did not give it to them because it was the ultimate morality, or give it to the Jews because they could earn their way to heaven by it. God gave it to the Jews to teach them and to teach all of the world and all generations after them that you cannot earn your way to God by any means, because you'll always come up short if you're trying to earn your salvation. It has to be by faith. So therefore, God gave them a law and a burden which none of them could perfectly keep. God did not do it because he was cruel, but God gave the Old Testament ceremonial law to the Jews for a specific amount of time so that he might teach them and then all the world that you can't earn your way to God. Nobody can. You have to repent and believe by faith and then God will forgive you, but you cannot achieve forgiveness by God if you are coming to him through God, from God. If you come to God saying, I'm coming by my good works Paul said in Galatians, the law was a school teacher to bring me to Christ. But now that I am in Christ, I'm no longer under the schoolmaster. So the law taught me that I was a sinner and I must turn to Christ. And now that I've turned to Christ, I'm no longer under the law. It doesn't mean that there's not rules that God still wants us to live by and things that God calls an abomination that today he still does. But that ceremonial law, the Sabbath days, the, the holy days, all of those things God looked at And God said that was in the past, that was to bring you to Christ. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Praise the Lord. Wherefore, my sentence is, James says later in the chapter, that we trouble not them which are from among the Gentiles that are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Okay, I'm trying to move forward and not get too bogged down. But they looked at all of the Old Testament law, and they said, we just want you to not partake in things that are sacrificed to idols, the drinking of blood, 
And often the ceremonies, when they did that to the idols, there would be fornication as part of it. And in other parts of the New Testament, Paul says, don't buy meat in the marketplace that's being advertised as meat that was sacrificed to the idol in that, in that pagan ceremony. And here the reason was given, it's not even that you couldn't eat a piece of meat that was once sacrificed to an idol. If you didn't know, Paul said, you don't have to ask. The meat has no power over you. The idols don't. But because there were Jews in every city that were sincerely trying to seek the Lord, he said, if you as a Christian say, I'm a Christian, but I eat meat that was once sacrificed to an idol, they won't want to hear you and listen to the gospel. So then my point is what they were telling them to keep was out of love for others to lay aside their liberty, not because there was any righteousness to be added or favor to be gained from God by following that Old Testament law. Okay, and then he says, you must be circumcised and keep the law whom we gave no such commandment. Those were the people who were troubling them. So that's who Paul is talking about when he's talking about beware of the concision, those who teach circumcision and adherence to Old Testament law as a way to be right with God. These false teachers taught adherence to the Torah as a part of Christianity. He says in Titus 1.10, there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. What is this? This is adding to grace. This is adding burdensome, extra biblical rules and trying to lay them on the backs of others in the name of self-righteousness. And this was a problem in the New Testament, and it will always be a problem that needs to be addressed. Okay, quickly through Colossians, you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he hath quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all of your trespasses. This section, Paul is using the metaphor of circumcision to talk about that if you put faith in Christ, then you're truly the sons of Abraham because Abraham believed by faith. And it was not the ceremonial things that Abraham did that made him right with God, okay? And he says that when Jesus died for our sins, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. What was the law? The law was not evil or wrong, but the law was bad for us. Because Paul says the law was right, but the law showed me that I was wrong. So therefore, the law and our inability to keep it perfectly was taken out of the way when Christ died for us on the cross. And when he did so, he spoiled the principalities, speaking of the demons and powers, and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Here he specifically says those dietary laws, you don't have to keep them anymore. You don't have to let people judge you if you don't. Then he references the holy day, which would be the Jewish holidays. Then he references the new moon celebrations that were given in the Mosaic law. Then he says, or of the Sabbath days, even the weekly Sabbath itself and the command to not do any work or to move about is not for New Testament believers. The scriptures of the New Testament and history itself clearly shows us that from the time of Christ, Christians met on Sunday and called it the Lord's Day because that was the day that he was risen from the dead. So therefore, beware, because the law was a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. The law was pictures. The law was types, but it was all pointing to Jesus Christ. 
If I were to sit in my living room and look at a picture of my daughter, which I do a lot and say, isn't she beautiful? Thank you, God, for giving her to us. And she were to come up and say, daddy, talk with me, play with me. And I would say, no, no, I'm too busy for you. I'm looking at your picture. I'm enjoying your picture. You go away and don't bother me. That would be ridiculous. But that's what we do when we look at the Old Testament law and the rigidity of it and think, no, no, I don't want to enjoy Christ in his fullness. I'm hung up on the shadow. Those things pointed to Christ, but after Christ has come, we are to beware of this legalism. Beware of the Hebrew roots movement that tells you you have to keep the Old Testament law either to be saved or to be right with God. Or you're more spiritual if you celebrate this Jewish holiday with us and you need to not gather on the Lord's Day, but do it on the Sabbath day. You're not as spiritual as I am if you don't keep the Old Testament law. Many of those things are not wrong to do. If you're Jewish, then keep your culture. Keep your tradition if you want to. If you want to go to somebody who's having a Passover dinner because you wanted to see what it was like and learn from it, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you think that's going to get you closer to God or you begin to judge others who are not keeping that tradition, you have crossed the line and you're being in what Paul told this church they were to beware of. We also should be willing to give up our rights and traditions for the gospel. Timothy was Greek, but after he became an adult, he was circumcised so that he could try to show to the Jews that he wanted them to get saved and he was not despising Jewish culture or tradition. Galatians 5, 6, In Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. That's what Paul's talking about. That's not necessary for salvation. That's not necessary to not be heathen as it was in the Old Testament, but it's about faith and it's about love. And I lost my place in my notes. I think I turned the page too soon. My dad used to say, when you do that, you get people's attention more than if you just were talking like you were supposed to. They all go, oh, what's he doing? He's getting stuck up there. So Philippians 3.3 3. Continuing on, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So again, I know it's kind of strange that the New Testament talks that much about the idea of circumcision, but what he's saying is that figuratively, we are the circumcision if we worship God in the spirit, if we receive Christ by faith and put aside the works of the flesh as a way to come to God, because it's always been about faith, not about works not about the law. So number two, after he says, beware of false teachers, he says, beware of confidence in the flesh. Lord, help me to plow through this here and please bless your word. What is the flesh? The flesh is the body, our nature, our sinful nature and our own works that we do. Philippians 3, 4, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. He's going here to say if there's anybody who could have made it to God by works or trusted their good works or Jewish law adherence as a way to get to heaven, it would have been me, but it didn't work for me. Listen to what he says. Circumcised the eighth day, which was the way it was to be done according to the law of Moses, of the stock of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm in Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says. As touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. 
Now note here that he's not by any means claiming sinless perfection. He's not saying, I've arrived, I'm perfect. He's going to transition into what we'll cover here in a couple weeks in the same chapter to say, I've not arrived, I'm not perfect. I'm awaiting that perfection that God would give me. But what he's saying is simply this. If anyone could have made it by good works, it would have been me. Yet it utterly failed me. And it led me to killing Christians, thinking that I was doing the will of God. Paul would say this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. In Romans 7, he described his own struggle to fail to do all the things that God would want him to do sometimes and to keep the law. And how every time he looked at the law and said, I want to keep it, and he failed to keep it, it mocked him. It said, you're guilty. It condemned him. And he said, but the law was a good gift. Because it taught me I have to look away from my flesh and good works and look to Christ by faith and that I could then be forgiven. He said in Romans chapter 3, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You want to brag? You want to think you can earn your way to heaven? Then look at the law. Look even just at the Ten Commandments and try to honestly claim without us laughing that you could live an entire life and never once sin against God. You can't. No one can. The law tells the world you're guilty. So don't try to earn your way to God. Come to God and receive salvation as a free gift. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law taught us we were sinners, but by good works, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in the eyes of God. My heart breaks for many who continue to follow the Old Testament, but reject the new because they are convinced that one day they will stand before God and God will look at their works, look at their adherence to the law and proclaim them righteous. But it's not true. It's not possible. And Paul says good works are futile. It's futile to try and earn our way to heaven by the good we do. God wants us to do good, but not to try and wipe away our sins. That's not possible. Even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I've been on a little bit of a Pilgrim's Progress kick recently as Sarissa was learning it in the Wednesday night kids class that we had a couple of months ago. and We've been reading the book with her and watching the movie. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress in the 1600s as an allegory of the Christian life in his own journey to the Lord. And he said that for years he struggled to do good works in order to be saved, but all that it did was created a massive burden upon his back that needed to be lifted. And in the book he writes of this man, Christian, who was trying to make his journey to heaven. And the evangelist had told him, get on the straight path, go through the gate. That's the only way to get in. And that represented faith. But as he traveled that way with his burden upon his back, he met a character named Mr. Worldly Wise Man who said, I know of an easier way to get rid of your burden. It's through legalism. It's through morality. And he tells Christian, in yonder village named Morality, there dwells a gentleman whose name is Legality, a very judicious man, a man of a very good name that has skill to help men off with such burdens as thine is from thy shoulders. Yea, to my knowledge, he hath done a great deal of good this way. He hath skill to cure those that are somewhat crazed in their wits by their burdens. John Bunyan, in another book, 
telling his story. He called the book Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, referring to himself and his salvation story. He wrote about this and where it came from in his own life. He says, I fell to some outward reformation. Lord, help me. Reformation, both in my words and life, and did set the commandments before me for my way to heaven, which commandments I also did strive to keep. And as I thought, did keep them pretty well sometimes, and then I should have some comfort. Back to Pilgrim's Progress. Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. But behold, when he got nigh on the hill which it was situated, it seemed so high, and the sight of it was next to the wayside. It did hang over Christian that he was afraid to venture farther lest the hill should fall on his head. Thus he stood still and knew not what to do. Also his burden now seemed heavier on him than while he was in his way. In other words, he went to climb the mountain of legality of good works of morality but it came to where it was almost bending over him and he looked and he said it's impossible for me to climb this on my own i hope you see the allegory and the picture of how he was telling of his own life and how burdensome it was for him to say i'll try to be good enough to get to heaven now christian began to be sorry that he had taken mr worldly wise man's counsel and with that he saw evangelists come to meet him and at the sight of him he began to blush for shame Evangelist drew nearer and nearer, and coming to him, he looked upon him with a severe and dreadful countenance, and thus began to reason with Christian. What doest thou here, Christian? At which words Christian knew not what to answer, wherefore at present he stood speechless before him. Art thou not the man that I found crying without the walls of the city of destruction? Yes, dear sir, I am the man, Christian replied. Did I not direct thee the way of the little wicket gate? Yes, dear sir. How is it then that thou art so quickly turned aside, for thou art now out of the way? Then again in his personal testimony, John Bunyan speaks of his story. Now and then I should break one of the commandments and so afflict my conscience. But then I should repent and say I was sorry for it and promise God that I would do better next time. And thereby I was helped again. For then I thought I pleased God as well as any man in England. Thus I continued about a year, all which time our neighbors did take me to be a very godly man, a new and religious man, and did marvel much to see such a great and famous alteration in my life and manners. And indeed it was so, though yet I knew not Christ, nor grace, nor faith, nor hope. For as I have well seen since, had I then died, my state would have been the most fearful. He said, I was living religiously. I was doing good. The people who lived about me thought that I was a good man. But I knew in my heart, my burden was not gone because though I could keep a lot of the commandments a lot of the time, it kept coming back to show me you cannot be perfect. You cannot keep the law. And I would tell God, I'm sorry for keeping the law. And then I would feel better. And then I'd try and then I'd try and then it would lead me to failure again. You see, before or after salvation, if we set out just a list of rules and say, my acceptance with God is based off of how well I keep them, it leads to one of two things, pride and self-righteousness or utter frustration at our inability to keep it. I know the Bible is full of rules. I know we're supposed to keep them and I admonish you to do so. But our acceptance before God is not based upon our performance. It's based on the blood of Jesus Christ. Evangelists continued to tell Christian. 
he to whom thou wast sent for ease, being by name legality is the son of a bondwoman, which now is, and is in bondage with her children, and is in a mystery this Mount Sinai, which thou hast feared will fall on thy head. Now if she with her children are in bondage, how can thou expect them to be made free by them? This legality, therefore, is not able to set thee free from thy burden. No man was ever rid of his, no man was ever rid of his burden by him. No, nor is he ever like to be. Ye cannot be justified by the works of the law, for by the deeds of the law no man living can be rid of his burden. Therefore, Mr. Worldly Wise Man is an alien, and Mr. Legality is a cheat. Believe me, there is nothing in all this noise that thou hast heard of these sottish men, but a design to beguile thee from the way in which I had set thee. And Paul is telling them the same thing. Don't be pulled aside. Beware of having confidence in your flesh and not in Christ himself. Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 3, according touching the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. As much righteousness as you could get by the law, I had it, Paul said. Yet it was insufficient. Paul says, no vice or terrible outward sin could be seen by others in my life. Yet I was still lost. And like Bunyan said, had I died, I would have been condemned for all of eternity because I was not saved. Paul says, if anyone could have been saved by works, it was me. I had zeal, but it was not according to knowledge. If anyone could trust in their flesh, I could trust in mine more. And note here that Paul had to repent. He grew up Jewish. He was a Pharisee. He was taught this is the way to God. His nation, his culture, his family taught him something that he had to repent of. And we'll have no excuse when we stand before God to say, well, my tradition was this. My family did that. My nation did that. I just followed the way I was given. I was told there are many roads that lead to heaven. Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. There's one way and it's narrow and it's through Jesus Christ. And whether your tradition or your culture were to have been Jewish, Muslim, Catholic, or even Baptist, if it included any idea in your mind that it was your goodness, your tradition, your baptism, your church membership, or anything other than the blood of Christ that would take you to heaven, you have to repent of that. You have to humble yourself. You have to come to God by faith. As much righteousness as you could have gotten by the law, Paul said, I had it all. But it was empty and it was short. One more clip from Pilgrim's Progress. There was a character whose name was Ignorance. And on his journey, Christian said to Ignorance, Come with me. Go to the celestial city. You have to go on the narrow way. It has to be by faith. And the character called Ignorance responded to him, somewhat offended. He said, I know my Lord's will. I have been a good liver. I pay every man his own. I pray. I fast. I pay tithes. And I give alms. Gentlemen, ye be utter strangers to me. I know you not. Be content to follow the religion of your country. And I will follow the religion of mine. And I hope all will be well. And as for the gate that you talk of, all the world knows that it is a great way off of our country. And how many people have been held upon by the traditions in which they were raised and said, I will not do it the way Jesus said. I will do it my own way. 
At the end of the book, Christian makes it to the celestial city which pictures heaven. He passes through the river of death and the angels take him and bring him to go into the presence of the shepherd. And then he says that as he was entering into heaven, he turned back and he saw this same character named Ignorance who had said, I'll get there, I'll come, but I'll do it my own way. And the character says this, Now while I was gazing upon all these things, I turned my head to look back and saw Ignorance come up to the riverside. But he soon got over, and that without half the difficulty which the other two men met with. For it happened that there was then in that place one named Vain Hope, a ferryman that saw with his boat he needed help and gave him a ride over the river. So he, as the others I saw, did ascend the hill, come up to the gate which represented heaven. Only he came alone. Neither did any man come out to greet him with any encouragement. When he was come up to the gate, he looked up to the writing that was above and then began to knock, supposing that entrance should have been quickly administered to him. But he was asked by the men that looked over the top of the gate, Whence came you? And what would you have? He answered, I have eaten and drank in the presence of the king, and he has taught in our streets. Then they asked him for his certificate, that they might go in and show it to the king. So he fumbled in his bosom for one and found none. And they said, Have you none? But the man never answered a word. So they told the king, but he would not come down to see him, but commanded the two shining ones that conducted Christian and hopeful to the city to go out and take ignorance and bind him hand and foot and have him away. Then they took him up and carried him through the air to the door that I saw on the side of the hill and put him there. Then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven, as well as from the city of destruction. And the great tragedy is that many people have followed their own tradition, their own way, their own righteousness, and they will enter to the gate of heaven, as it were, and knock with full expectance that they will be admitted. But they will be told, depart from me, I never knew you, because nobody's way to heaven is sufficient. You may think you're a good man, you may think you're a good person, but there's none righteous, no, not one. No one will enter to heaven because they did it their way and achieved it only by repentance and faith in the work of Christ and the cross. If we say, Lord, I believe in you, will you please save me by your mercy? Then our record will be clean and we will gain entrance to heaven. Number three, and we're done. Paul said, beware of loving the world more than loving Christ. He continues, Philippians 3, 7, after saying his own righteousness was insufficient, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. My Phariseeism, my cultural background, my respect that I had within the synagogue, I looked at them not as something that was actually gainful or worthy or worthwhile, but I said, that's actually loss in my life. That will cost me because it's going to keep me from Christ. So I'll get rid of it. I'll go forward. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, not just my tradition, not just my position, but all things, Paul says, as it were, I took them and threw them overboard so that I might sail the course to Christ with no regrets, with no second thoughts, 
Without a split second of wishing I had stayed behind, I gave them up and I counted it an honor to do so because I knew in order by doing that I was gaining Christ, I was gaining eternity, I was gaining crowns in heaven, I was gaining a new brotherhood amongst the body of believers in Christ. My goodness, my accomplishments, whatever pleasure I could have by disobeying the word of God, the money, the praise of men, all things I counted them but lost because they would actually cost me being close with my Savior. And using strong terms, he says, I counted them but dung that I may win Christ. The word there means waste, trash, refuse, filth, or garbage. Paul said, take all the good, all the pleasure and the glory that the world could ever offer me. And I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. Paul would say, my achievements mean absolutely nothing to me. I want Christ. God forbid that I should glory in anything save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. A death had to take place in my acceptance of the world and the people in it, in my relationship to them, Paul said, but I was willing to do it, because Christ died on the cross for me, and I will glory in the cross. I know I say this every week, but please forgive me for the time. I believe in four to five minutes we'll plow through the end of this. Works won't do this. Works won't help me win Christ. But I want Christ. And I want Him more than I want the world. That's what repentance is. And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. The name of Jesus Christ is the name whereby we must be saved. There's none other name given among heaven whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Paul said, yes, I want the power of his resurrection. That's our hope. That's how we live the Christian life. That's how we have confidence. We will go through the resurrection and we can win. But he also says, I desire to walk with him in his will through the fellowship of his sufferings. Many people want the power. Many people want the resurrection. But few want the death. Few want the reproach. Few are willing to take the mockery and the shame and the scorn that Jesus took. But Paul said, when I look at the life of Jesus, I see not just the glory, but I see the reproach. And if I want to bear his name, I'll say, Lord, I'll take the reproach too. If that's what you call me to do. There was a character early on in Pilgrim's Progress whose name was Pliable. And Christian said, come with me to the celestial city. There's streets of gold. There's hope and life and joy eternal. And Pliable said, that sounds good to me. I want some gold. I want some joy. But at the first opportunity where there was an obstacle, he quit and went back and said, this doesn't look like gold and joy and fun and rainbows to me. Many people said, I'll follow Jesus while he's doing the miracles. I'll follow Jesus while there's a free lunch involved. But when they came to arrest him, they fled and they ran away. And you cannot come to Christ and say, well, you're going to make my life a little bit better. So I guess I'll, I'll kind of follow you. No, true repentance is following Christ and saying, I want you more than anything. It's not about what I can gain. I want the power of your resurrection, but I'll take the fellowship of your sufferings on the way to heaven as well. Because that's what you went through for me. Albert Barnes says of this passage and the idea of the fellowship of his sufferings, 
Paul is saying that I may participate in the same kind of sufferings that he endured. That is that I may in all things be identified with him. Paul wished to be just like his Savior. He felt that it was an honor to live as Christ did, to invince the spirit that Christ did, and to suffer in the same manner. All that Christ did and suffered was glorious in his view, and he wished in all things to resemble him. He did not desire merely to share his honors and triumphs in heaven, but regarding his whole work as glorious. He wished to be wholly conformed to that, and as far as possible to be just like Christ. Many are willing to reign with Christ, but they would not be willing to suffer with him. Many would be willing to wear a crown of glory like him, but not the crown of thorns. Many would be willing to put on the robes of splendor which will be worn in heaven, but not the scarlet robe of contempt and mockery. So Peter says, Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. They would desire to share the glories and triumphs of redemption, but not its poverty, contempt, and persecution. This was not the feeling of Paul. He wished in all things to be just like Christ, and hence he counted it in honor to be permitted to suffer as he did. Paul also says being made conformable unto his death. Paul says if I die in this jail cell, it would be an honor to die like Christ died as a martyr for the cause of the Lord. We desire and picture and rightfully so a deathbed where we live out a full life and our family members gather around us and we sing praises and the angels carry us off. And what a beautiful thing that is. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And we got to come see Pauline right before she passed and praise the Lord for that wonderful life she lived and the smile on her face in her last moments. But if we're robbed of such comforts, And we're called, as the men who wrote this Bible were, to be killed by the sword for the cause of Christ. Be willing to face reproach and injustice at this hour of death, if the will of God be so, just like Christ did for you. And I'll tell you about William Tyndale another time, because I'm out of time. Love not this world more than Christ. The world passes away, and the lust thereof. But whoso doeth the will of God abideth forever. What shall it profit a man, our Savior said, if he gain the world, yet lose his own soul? Lay not up for yourselves treasure on earth, but treasure in heaven. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, may we heed the scripture today. May we beware of loving righteousness or self more than we love you. May every person here this morning be saved by grace through faith. May we seek to see others saved in that same manner. Let's have a brief moment of prayer before we're dismissed.